0: Section 4 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K Hand. Sir Walter Scott, Part 2. With a secure and settled income, Scott now meditated a literary life. A hundred years ago, such a life was impossible without independent means, if a man would mingle in society and live conventionally and what was called respectably. Even Burns had to accept a public office, although it was a humble one, and far from lucrative, but it gave him what poetry could not, his daily bread. Hogg, peasant poet of the Ettrick Forest, was supported in all his earlier years by tending sheep and borrowing money from his friends. The first genuine literary adventure of Scott was his collection of A Scottish minstrelsy, printed for him by James Ballantyne, a former schoolfellow, who had been encouraged by scott to open a shop in edinburgh the preparation of this labor of love occupied the editor a year assisted by john Leyden, a man of great promise who died in india in eighteen eleven having made a mark as an orientalist about this time began scott's memorable friendship with george ellis the most discriminating and useful of all his literary friends in the same year he made the acquaintance of thomas campbell the poet who had already achieved fame by his pleasures of hope It was in 1802 that the first and second volumes of The Minstrelsy appeared, in an edition of 800 copies, Scott's share of the profit amounting to 78 pounds 10 shillings, which did not pay him for the actual expenditure in the collection of his materials. The historical notes with which he elucidated the value of the ancient ballads, and the freshness and vigor of those which he himself wrote for the collection, secured warm commendations from Ellis Ritson and other friends, and the whole issue was sold yet the work did not bring him wide fame. The third and last volume was issued in 1803. The work is full of Scott's best characteristics, wide historical knowledge, wonderful industry, humor, pathos, and a sympathetic understanding of life, that of the peasant as well as the knight, such as seizes the imagination. Lockhart quotes a passage of Scott's own self-criticism, I am sensible that if there be anything good about my poetry or prose either, It is a hurried frankness of composition, which pleases soldiers, sailors, and young people of bold and active dispositions. His ability to toil terribly in accumulating choice material, and then fusing it in his own spirit, to throw it forth among men with this hurried frankness that stirs the blood, was the secret of his power. Scott did not become famous, however, until his first original poem appeared, The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Printed by Ballantine in eighteen o five and published by Longman of London and Constable of Edinburgh, it was a great success. Nearly fifty thousand copies were sold in Great Britain alone by eighteen thirty for the first edition of seven hundred and fifty copies quarto Scott received one hundred sixty nine pounds six shillings and then sold the copyright for five hundred pounds. in the meantime, a rich uncle died without children, and Scott's share of the property enabled him in eighteen o four to rent from his cousin, Major General Sir James Russell, the pretty property called as a cottage and farm on the banks of the Tweed, altogether a beautiful place, where he lived when discharging his duties of Sheriff of Selkirkshire. He has celebrated the charms of as in the canto production to Marmion. His income at this time amounted to about a thousand pounds a year, which gave him a position among the squires of the neighborhood, complete independence, and leisure to cultivate his taste. His fortune was now made, with poetic fame besides, and powerful friends, he was a man every way to be envied. The lay of the last minstrel placed Scott among the three great poets of Scotland for originality and beauty of rhyme. It is not marked by pathos or by philosophical reflections. It is a purely descriptive poem of great vivacity and vividness, easy to read and true to nature. It is a tale of chivalry, and is to poetry what Froissart's chronicles are to history nothing exactly like it had before appeared in english literature it appealed to all people of romantic tastes and was reproachless from a moral point of view it was a book for a lady's bower full of chivalric sentiments and stirring incidents and of unflagging interest from beginning to end partly warlike and partly monastic describing the adventures of knights and monks it deals with wizards harpers dwarfs priests warriors and noble dames it sings of love and wassailings of gentle ladies tears of castles and festal halls of pennons and lances of ancient deeds so long forgot of feuds whose memory was not of forests now laid waste and bare of towers which harbor now the hare. in the lay of the last minstrel there is at least one immortal stanza which would redeem the poem even if otherwise mediocre how few poets can claim as much as this very few poems live except for some splendid passages which cannot be forgotten and which give fame i know nothing even in burns finer than the following lines breathes there the man with soul so dead who never to himself hath said this is mine own my native land whose heart hath ne'er within him burned as home his footsteps he hath turned from wandering on a foreign strand if such there breathe go mark him well for him no minstrel raptures swell high though his titles proud his name boundless wealth as wish can claim despite those titles power and pelf the wretch concentred all in self living shall forfeit far renown and doubly dying shall go down to the vile dust from whence he sprung unwept unhonoured and unsung the favour with which the lay of the last minstrel was received greater than that of any narrative poem of equal length which had appeared for two generations even since dryden's day naturally brought great commendation from jeffrey the keenest critic of the age in the famous magazine of which he was the editor the edinburgh review had been started only in 1802 by three young men of genius jeffrey brougham and sydney smith and had already attained great popularity but not such marvelous influence as it wielded ten years afterwards, when 9,000 copies were published every three months, and at such a price as gave to its contributors a splendid remuneration, and to its editors absolute critical independence. The only objection to this powerful periodical was the severity of its criticisms, which often also were unjust. It seemed to be the intent of the reviewers to demolish everything that was not of extraordinary merit fierce attacks are not criticism. The articles in the Edinburgh Review were of a different sort from the polished and candid literary dissections which made the St. Bev so justly celebrated. In the beginning of the century, however, these savage attacks were all the fashion and to be expected, yet they stung authors almost to madness, as in the case of the review of Byron's early poetry. Literary courtesy did not exist. Justice gave place generally to ridicule or sarcasm. The Edinburgh Review was a terror to all pretenders and often to men of real merit, but it was published when most judges were cruel and severe, even in the halls of justice. The friendship between Scott and Jeffrey had been very close for 10 years before the inception of the Edinburgh Review, and although Scott was, perhaps growing out of his love for antiquarian researches and admiration of things that had been, an inveterate conservative and Tory, while the New Review was slashingly liberal and progressive, he was drawn in by friendship and literary interest to be a frequent contributor during its first three or four years. The politics of the Edinburgh Review, however, and the establishment in 1808 of the conservative Quarterly Review caused a gradual cessation of this literary connection without marring the friendly relations between the two men. About this time began Scott's friendship with Wordsworth, for whom he had great respect. Indeed, his modesty led him to prefer everybody's good poetry to his own. He felt himself inferior not only to Burns, but also to Wordsworth and Camel and Coleridge and Byron, as in many respects he undoubtedly was. But it requires in an author discernment and humility of a rare kind to make him capable of such a discrimination. More important to him than any literary friendship was his partnership with James Ballantine, the printer, whom he had known from his youth. This in the end proved unfortunate and nearly ruined him, for Ballantine, though an accomplished man and a fine printer, as well as enterprising and sensible, was not a safe businessman, being over sanguine. For a time, however, this partnership, which was kept secret, was an advantage to both parties, although Scott embarked in the enterprise his whole available capital, about five thousand pounds. In connection with the publishing business, soon added to the printing, with James Ballantine's brother John as figurehead of the concern, a talented but dissipated and reckless good fellow with no more head for business than either James Ballantyne or Scott, the association bound Scott hand and foot for twenty years and prompted him to adventurous undertakings. But it must be said that the Ballantynes always deferred to him, having for him a sentiment little short of veneration. One of the first results of this partnership was an eighteen-volume edition of Dryden's poems, with a life which must have been to Scott little more than drudgery. He was well paid for his work, although it added but little to his fame, except for intelligent literary industry. Before Dryden, however, in the same year, 1808, appeared the poem of Marmion, A Tale of Flodden Field, which was received by the public with great avidity and unbounded delight. Geoffrey wrote a chilling review, for which Scott with difficulty forgave him, since with all his humility and amiability he could not bear unfriendly or severe criticism. In a letter to Joanna Bailey, Scott makes some very sensible remarks as to the incapability of such a man as Geoffrey appreciating a work of the imagination, distinguished as he was. I really have often told him that I think he wants the taste for poetry which is essentially necessary to enjoy, and of course to criticize with justice. He is learned with the most learned in its canons and laws, skilled in its modulations, and an excellent judge of the justice of the sentiments which it conveys, but he wants that enthusiastic feeling which, like sunshine upon a landscape, lights up every beauty and palliates if it cannot hide every defect. To offer a poem of imagination to a man whose whole life and study have been to acquire a stoical indifference towards enthusiasm of every kind would be the last, as it would surely be the silliest, action of my life. As stated above, it was about this time that Scott broke off his connection with the Edinburgh Review. Perhaps that was what Geoffrey wished, since the review became thenceforth more intensely partisan, and Scott's Toryism was not what was wanted. It is fair to add that in 1810 Geoffrey sent Scott advance proofs of his critique on The Lady of the Lake, with a frank and friendly letter in which he says, "'I am now sensible that there were needless asperities in my review of Marmion, and, from the hurry in which I have been forced to write, I dare say there may be some here also.' I am sincerely proud both of your genius and of your glory, and I value your friendship more highly than most either of my literary or political opinions. Southey, Ellis, and Wordsworth, Erskine, Heber, and other friends wrote congratulatory letters about Marmion with slight allusions to minor blemishes. Lockhart thought that it was, on the whole, the greatest of Scott's poems in strength and boldness. Most critics regarded the long introduction to each canto as a defect— since it broke the continuity of the narrative, but it may at least be said that these preludes give an interesting insight into the author's mood and views. The opinions of literary men, of course, differ as to the relative excellence of the different poems. Marmion certainly had great merit and added to the fame of the author. There is here more variety of meter than in his other poems, and also some passages of such beauty as to make the poem immortal, like the death of Marmion and those familiar lines in reference to Clara's constancy. O woman, in our hours of ease, Uncertain coy and hard to please, And variable as the shade by the light Quivering aspen made, When pain and anguish wring the brow, A ministering angel thou. The sale of Marmion ultimately reached 50,000 copies in Great Britain. The poem was originally published in a luxurious quarto at thirty-one and a half shillings. Besides 1,000 guineas in advance, half the profits went to Scott and must have reached several thousand pounds, a great sale, when we remember that it was confined to libraries and people of wealth. In America, the poem was sold for two or three shillings, less than one-tenth of what it cost the English reader. A successful poem or novel in England is more remunerative to the author from the high price at which it is published than in the United States, where prices are lower and royalties rarely exceed 10%. It must be borne in mind, however, that, in England, editions are ordinarily very small, sometimes consisting of not more than 250 copies. The first edition of Marmion was only of 2,000 copies. The largest edition published was in 1811 of 5,000 copies octavo, but even this did not circulate largely among the people. The popularity of Scott in England was confined chiefly to the upper classes, at least until the copyright of his books had expired. The booksellers were not slow in availing themselves of Scott's popularity. They employed him to edit an edition of Swift for 1,500 pounds and tried to induce him to edit a general edition of English Poets. The scheme was abandoned in consequence of a disagreement between Scott and Murray, the London publisher, as to the selection of poets. I think the quarrels of authors 80 or 100 years ago with their publishers were more frequent than they are in these times. We read of a long alienation between Scott and Constable, the publisher, who enjoyed a sort of monopoly of the poet's contributions to literature. Constable soon after found a great rival in Murray, who was at this time an obscure London bookseller in Fleet Street. Both these great publishers were remarkable for sagacity and were bold in their ventures. The foundation of Constable's wealth was laid when he was publishing the Edinburgh Review. In 1809, Murray started the Quarterly Review, its great political rival, and with the aid of Scott, who wrote many of its most valuable articles, and William Guilford, satirist and critic, became its first editor. Growing out of the quarrel between Scott and Constable was the establishment of John Ballantyne and Co. as publishers and booksellers in Edinburgh. Shortly after the establishment of the quarterly review as a Tory journal, Scott began his third great poem, The Lady of the Lake, which was published in 1810, In All the Majesty of a Quarto, at the price of two guineas a copy. He received for it two thousand guineas. The first edition of 2,000 copies disappeared at once and was followed the same year by four octavo editions. In a few months, the sale reached 20,000 copies. The poem received great commendation both from the Quarterly and the Edinburgh Review. Mr. Alice, in his article in the Quarterly, thus wrote, There is nothing in Scott of the severe majesty of Milton, or of the terse composition of Pope, or the elaborate elegance of Campbell, or the flowing and redundant diction of Southey." but there is a medley of bright images and a diction tinged successively with the careless richness of shakespeare the antique simplicity of the old romances the homeliness of vulgar ballads and the sentimental glitter of the most modern poetry passing from the borders of the ludicrous to the sublime alternately minute and energetic sometimes artificial and frequently negligent but always full of spirit and vivacity abounding in images that are striking at first sight to minds of every contexture and never expressing a sentiment which it can cost the most ordinary reader any exertion to comprehend. This seems to me to be a fair criticism, although the lucidity of Scott's poetry is not that which is most admired by modern critics. Fashion in these times delights in what is obscure and difficult to be understood, as if depth and profundity must necessarily be unintelligible to ordinary readers. In Scott's time, however, the fashion was different, and the popularity of his poems became almost universal however there are the same fire vivacity and brilliant colouring in all three of these masterpieces as they were regarded two generations ago reminding one of the witchery of aristo yet there is no great variety in these poems such as we find in byron no great force of passion or depth of sentiment but a sort of harmonious rhythm more highly prized in the earlier part of the century than in the latter since wordsworth and tennyson have made us familiar with what is deeper and richer as well as more artistic, in language and versification. But no one has denied Scott's originality and high merits, in contrast with the pompous tameness and conventionality of the poetry which arose when Johnson was the oracle of literary circles, and which still had the stage in Scott's day. Even Scott's admirers, however, like Canning and Ellis, did not hesitate to say that they would like something different from anything he had already written. But this was not to be, and perhaps the reason why he soon after gave up writing poetry was the conviction that his genius as a poet did not lie in variety and richness, either of style or matter. His great fame was earned by his novels. One thing greatly surprises me. Scott regarded Joanna Bailey as the greatest poetical genius of that day, and he derived more pleasure from reading Johnson's London and The Vanity of Human Riches than from any other poetical composition. Indeed, there is nothing more remarkable in literary history than Scott's admiration of poetry inferior to his own, and his extraordinary modesty in the estimate of his own productions. Most poets are known for their morbid vanity, their self-consciousness, their feeling of superiority, and their deprecation of superior excellence, but Scott had eminently a healthy mind, as he had a healthy body, and shrank from exaggeration as he did from vulgarity in all its forms." It is probable that his own estimate of his poetry was nearer the truth than that of his admirers, who were naturally inclined to be partial. There has been so much poetry written since The Lady of the Lake was published, not only by celebrated poets like Wordsworth, Southey, Moore, Byron, Campbell, Keats, Shelley, Tennyson, Browning, Longfellow, Lowell, Whittier, Bryant, but also by many minor authors, that the standard is now much higher than it was in the early part of the century much of that which then was regarded as very fine is now smiled at by the critics and neglected by cultivated readers generally and scott has not escaped unfavorable criticism it has been my object to present the subject of this lecture historically rather than critically to show the extraordinary popularity of scott as a poet among his contemporaries rather than to estimate his merit at the present time i confess that most of marmion as also of the lady of the lake is tame to me and deficient in high poetic genius. Doubtless, we are all influenced by the standards of our own time and the advances making in literature as well as in science and art. Yet this change in the opinions of critics does not apply to Byron's Child Herald, which is as much, if not as widely admired now as when it was first published. We think as highly too of The Deserted Village, The Elegy in a Country Churchyard, and The Cotter's Saturday Night as our fathers did, And men now think much more highly of the merits of Shakespeare than they have at any period since he lived, so that, after all, there is an element in true poetry which does not lose by time. In another hundred years, the verdicts of critics as to the greater part of the poems of Tennyson, Wordsworth, Browning, and Longfellow may be very different from what they are now, while some of their lyrics may be, as they are now, produced immortal. Poetry is both an inspiration and an art. The greater part of that which is now produced is made, not born. Those daintily musical and elaborate measures which are now the fashion, because they claim novelty or reproduce the quaintness of an art so old as to be practically new, perhaps will soon again be forgotten or derided. What is simple, natural, appealing to the heart rather than the head, may last when more pretentious poetry shall have passed away. Neither criticism nor contemporary popularity can decide such questions. Scott himself seemed to take a true view. In a letter to Miss Seward he said, The immortality of poetry is not so firm a point in my creed as the immortality of the soul. I've lived too long and seen the death of much immortal song. Nay, those that have really attained their literary immortality have gained it under very hard conditions. To some, it has not attached till after death. To others, it has been the means of lauding personal vices and follies which had otherwise been unremembered in their epitaphs and all enjoy the same immortality under a condition similar to that of Nureddin in an eastern tale Nureddin you remember was to enjoy the gift of immortality but with this qualification that he was subjected to long naps of forty fifty or a hundred years at a time even so homer and virgil slumbered through whole centuries shakespeare himself enjoyed undisturbed sleep from the age of charles I until garrick waked him dryden's fame has nodded that of pope begins to be drowsy Chaucer is as sound as a top, and Spencer is snoring in the midst of his commentators. Milton indeed is quite awake, but observe, he was at his very outset refreshed with a nap of half a century, and in the midst of all this we sons of degeneracy talk of immortality. Let me please my own generation, and let those who come after us judge of their facts and my performances as they please. The anticipation of their neglect or censure will affect me very little. End of section four